Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What is up? It's a gold fam. Happy Monday. Hope everyone is doing great this amazing Monday. I know it's been about two weeks since we dropped a new episode. Big things coming ahead. Appreciate your patience here. Super excited to be releasing this episode today with my guest, Andrew Bernie Bernstein. Andrew is a paraplegic vehicular assault survivor, and he has an amazing story. And I'm so honored, grateful, and excited to share it with you today. Andrew was an avid cyclist, formerly raced at an elite level that included Olympic qualifying events. He was an outdoor enthusiast, still is, and he was bike riding home just like any other day and was hit by a hit and run driver. And today I have the honor and privilege of sharing Andrew's story. In this episode today, we dive into Andrew's story, the day he got hit, the road to recovery, and how that moment, how that experience shaped his life and the life that he continues to live and build today. So with that, enjoy the show. Andrew Bernie Bernstein, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. Excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, I caught wind of your story originally first in like a men's health article, then on the outside, and was really captivated by your story, your experience, and wanted to have you on the show to tell your story to share it with our audience and take it from there. So maybe you can give a little introduction as to yourself, and then we could jump right into your story. Sounds great. And again, thanks for inviting me on. It's, uh, it's really quite an honor to be on the show and speak with you. So I'm 36. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York City, and I live in Boulder, Colorado now. I moved here in 2018. I have worked in publishing and media for most of my career, and currently I work at a, at a PR marketing agency. And I'm also an elite an amateur elite bike racer, which means that I've had the honor of competing uh, at a very high level in some disciplines of cycling, um, including racing in national championship events and Olympic qualifying events. In 2019, in July of 2019, I was assaulted by a driver while I was riding my bike here in Boulder. And you know, it was a hit and run. And the driver fled the scene after sending me into a ditch with very extensive injuries that included a spinal cord injury that has left me paraplegic. I barely survived the crash. Uh, you know, I had collapsed lungs, internal bleeding, 35 broken bones, and did survive thanks to a passerby who spotted me in the ditch, called 911, and spent three months in the hospital. I made it home from the hospital in you know October 2019, and then started on this rehabilitation journey that I'm on to this day. I am very fortunate. My spinal cord injury is incomplete, so I've had some recovery. Some people who have spinal cord injuries have their cords completely severed and lose all function below the level of their injury. Because mine was only incomplete, I was left with one functioning leg and one partially paralyzed leg, and then I have some other impairments 
I've been able to recover, but it requires a tremendous amount of work and and focus and dedication. And it's challenging, but I'm grateful to have the opportunity. Wow. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> um, it's a lot. I take it you've been cycling your entire life. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, as a family activity growing up, I rode a lot with my, my dad and my, my parents and my brother. And then, you know, kind of became more interested in cycling as sport, not just as recreation in high school and, you know, started doing like baby training. And then in college, I started racing and stuck with it after graduating and, and eventually achieved a, a pretty high level of competition in a discipline called track cycling. It's a niche type of cycling. It's much more popular in Europe. It occurs on a, in a stadium. It's something we call a velodrome, which is a cycling track. I like to make the, the comparison of marathon running and track running. And so, you know, track cycling, like track running, has kind of middle distance events and sprint events. And uh, I really found that I was much, much better at that than I was at any other discipline of cycling and really, really fell into it in a way that I loved and was able to be successful in for a long time. That's awesome. The day you were hit, was it just like any other day? You know, I'm, I'm assuming you, you rode your bike nearly every day? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I was training as much as, not quite as much as a professional, but close because I was racing with a lot of professionals. You know, I was riding anywhere up to 20 hours a week and racing two or three times a week. In 2019, I traveled to Pennsylvania to race. I traveled to California to race. I raced a lot here in Colorado. It was a very serious hobby, I would say. And I say hobby because I wasn't deriving a meaningful revenue from it. So I wouldn't call it a, a job by any means, but I dedicated a lot of my non-work and non-sleep time to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the day you're hit, it's like any other day, you're on the street in Colorado, right? I take it. And yep. you get hit, the car come head on. What was the car they were driving next to you? They came out of nowhere. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was a Saturday. And I had ridden from my home in Boulder out to our local velodrome, which is, you know, a couple of towns over, you know, got to the velodrome, switched to my track bike. I had done a workout. Actually, it started raining. So I got interrupted. You can't ride on a velodrome when it's raining. So I started to ride home to meet up with my fiance and go out to dinner. And I don't actually remember the crash, but I've learned that I was hit from behind by a man who was driving a big white cargo van. Was a wide road, big wide shoulder, you know, shoulder as wide as the travel lane. And the, you know, the police told me later that he appeared to swerve into the shoulder, hit me, and then continue driving without stopping. And I had a concussion, probably the combination of the concussion plus trauma. I blocked out the actual impact itself, but then I kind of remember coming to on the ground and like being like, "Oh man, I'm fucked up." But it was kind of a foggy thought. I wasn't fully conscious, and I remember trying to find my phone and I couldn't find it. And then I remember thinking about, all right, well, I have to like try and signal for a car. And I did. The man who found me, I was fortunate to connect with him later on. He said that he was driving down the road. He and his father were coming home from church. This is Saturday afternoon. And he saw me like sit up and then lay back down. And he, you know, so fleeting that he wasn't sure of what he'd seen. So he stopped and he thought like, well, maybe this is uh, an unhomed person who needs a lift back into town and maybe I can help. So he turned around and made a second pass and didn't see anything on the second pass, but he, you know, he was really concerned for what he might've seen. So he made a third pass. And on the third pass, he like spotted my helmet on the side of the road. So he like stopped, got out of the car. Sure enough, there's my broken bike. And then he like took a few more steps and then he found me. And again, you know, I was in this like semi-conscious state. He and I communicated a little bit. He called 911 and he told them, you know, I just found this guy. He, I don't see any blood, but he's having a really hard time breathing. Mm -hmm. 
and the you know 911 operator dispatched an ambulance and they asked him like how old is he and you know, obviously I had no idea how old I was but he looked at me and he said like well I guess he's 35 and you know I was 34 <laughs> at the time so he was pretty pretty close uh, and I apparently like nodded and smiled and so you know I was I was like kind of present but I wasn't able to really communicate were you in like significant pain or you were like so I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't remember there being pain. I remember knowing that I was very badly hurt. And I remember thinking like, wow, like I really messed up. I was engaged at the time. That woman and I broke up unrelated to any of this. But I remember thinking about her in that moment and thinking like how sorry I was for what, what I guess what I was going to put her through or what I had done to ruin our evening plans or like whatever, which is kind of a fucked up thought in that moment. But that was, that's what I remember thinking. I just remember thinking, I'm sorry. So the ambulance comes, you're taken to the hospital. What comes next? Yeah. So there were like four phases of hospital. There was like the phase one was the emergency department at this hospital in Boulder, which was fortunately just very close. And that was like, if you've seen like a medical drama and they show the emergency room scene where there's like shouting and there's doctors running. It was like that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. They put two chest tubes into me. Both of my lungs had collapsed. So they put two chest tubes in to help my lungs reinflate. And they also intubated me, tube down the throat to breathe for me essentially. And then, you know, full body scans, CATs, CT scans and x-rays, that's where they found this internal bleeding. I was like essentially bleeding out into my pelvis. So I had emergency surgery where they packed my pelvis, like little, you know, they put gauze in there to try and stop the blood. And, you know, once I was kind of stabilized, the doctors kind of they huddled and they said, all right, this guy is too messed up for what we can handle here in Boulder. We're going to fly him to a level one trauma center in Denver. So I got airlifted to Denver to a hospital called Denver Health. And I was at that hospital for a month, underwent 10 surgeries. I guess this is phase two, the Denver health phase, 10 surgeries to fix all the broken bones. I had, I had broken my shoulder, all of my ribs, my sternum, my pelvis, my tibia, fibia, femur, ankle. A lot of those required surgery. And I was eventually given a tracheostomy. The breathing tube came out of my mouth, but I then had a breathing hole on the video. You can see it. It's right. That's a little scar from it. Mm. And I was in the ICU for 10 days or so mostly out of it in a coma. Then I eventually came to, you know, when I came to, that's when my family was kind of trying to explain to me what, what had happened and what was going on. I really was not fully present and really didn't get it. And I like wanted to go home and they were like, obviously you can't go home. And I just didn't understand. And yeah. this is where I was in pain. I was in so much pain and I was on all the drugs, fentanyl, Dilaudid, codeine, like, and even so I would tell my fiance, like, I, you know, the nurses are beating me up. And obviously the nurses were not beating me up. The nurses were trying to take care of me. And when you have someone in a situation like I was in, sometimes you have to like roll the patient over, but all of my ribs were broken. So you know, any kind of motion was just excruciating despite all the drugs. And it was 10 days of that. And then when I started to improve, I was moved to what they call a step-down unit in the same hospital. So a little bit less intensive care, but still you know, a lot of drugs, blood transfusions, IV. I was on a catheter this whole time. And that was another couple of weeks. And then I was moved to what we call an LTAC long-term care hospital. And this is essentially like where a person who needs medical supervision, but isn't necessarily in danger of dying, goes and hangs out. And mm. they sent me to this hospital for a month just to let my bones heal. And, you know, I was like mostly on my back for this entire time. I started to be able to do some physical therapy in this hospital. And that was like, try to sit up. And I couldn't do that. And when I could finally sit up, they're like, okay, now we're going to try and stand. And I could stand for like a few seconds and I would get exhausted and, you know, I'd have to like fall into a wheelchair. 
controlled fall. Yeah, through all this, it was just like very slow progress. I was fortunate to have a lot of support from my family and from my fiance at the time. And a lot of friends came to visit. And then, you know, the final phase of the hospitalization was a rehab hospital in Denver. Once my bones healed, they sent me to this rehab hospital finally that specializes in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. And that's where I started to kind of like learn more about my spinal cord injury, what it meant. I was in a wheelchair at the time. So I was like learning wheelchair skills. I was starting to get working on like a lot more intensive physical therapy. And also learning skills for when I was going to be discharged so that I could continue to improve at home on my own. Mm. And yeah, then finally I was, I was discharged. <laughs> That's a lot, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's a boatload. So I guess just to take it back a little bit. So I'm going back to the beginning, but you come out of the coma, your family sort of tells you, your family cues you in into as, as to what happened, how you ended up in the hospital. I know you're on a lot of pain meds at that point, but you're in a tremendous amount of pain. How are you feeling just like from a mental standpoint, you're out of the coma, but you're, you're in an excruciating amount of pain. I guess, where were you at from like a headspace standpoint at that moment? I was pretty confused. I was confused for a long time. I remember some of the like dreams that I was having at this time. And I don't typically remember dreams, but I remember like combining things that were actually happening. Like, you know, I actually had this tracheostomy in my throat and it made weird noises all the time. And I was combining that with things that definitely were not happening, like working for a helicopter tour operation and things like that. I was pretty confused. The, the final stage at the the LTAC and and then certainly at the rehab hospital, that's when things kind of came to clearer focus. I was really focused on like trying to understand, trying to improve. And it may sound strange to say, but like as far as people with spinal cord injuries go, I'm pretty fortunate. You know, my my injury is pretty low in my spine, so my leg is involved. And my my bowels and my bladder are involved, but like my arms are unaffected, my respiration is unaffected. I have full control of my abdomen, and like a lot of spinal cord injury survivors don't have that. So I was feeling lucky in some ways that I was able to start to recover. And at the same time, I, I definitely was like grieving. And I remember saying, you know, that hospital, at the rehabilitation hospital, you get paired with a the physical therapist who's kind of like your main person. And I remember saying to my physical therapist, whose name was Joe, like, you know, like, like Joe, I, like, I really used to be something. And you know, his response was like, you still are. <laughs> and, you know, I think about that a lot because I was uh, a top level athlete and I loved competition. And it really defined me for a long time. And I have a hard time conceiving of myself differently. But at the same time, now that I'm two and a half years out from this injury, I have found other ways to, you know, enjoy my life and connect with people and, and tap into parts of myself that I not haven't necessarily been in touch with in a long time. That is a benefit of this situation is it's like a hard reset. And do I wish that I could have done a hard reset some other way? Yeah. But all the same, I'll take it. I'm not grateful for the injury, but I am grateful for the perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like the last rehab facility, the long-term care, is that, is that correct? Yeah. So there was like a long-term care hospital that I was at kind of to rest and recover from the trauma. And then I went to a rehab hospital that's called Craig Hospital here in Denver. It's one of the leading spinal cord rehabilitation hospitals in the country. And I was fortunate to be able to go there because it was close. And also they took my insurance. Got it. So I'm curious, when you were there, did you connect with anyone else that's had like spinal cord injuries, things of that nature? Yeah, very much. Part of the program at Craig Hospital is that you do these like kind of group therapy classes. They're designed around physical therapy. And it, you know, it might be like trying to strengthen your shoulders, you know, which is important for people who are going to be in a wheelchair. Or you know, it might be things around like trying to stimulate your lower body. 
so you end up interacting with a lot of other patients in that way. And then, you know, things are different now during COVID, but back in 2019, you'd go to the cafeteria at lunchtime and just, you know, it was like kind of like being in high school. You just pick a table and sit and talk. So I did develop a few, a few meaningful relationships with folks that I'm still in touch with and see on a regular basis. And I've also been able to, to connect with a few other people who are in the spinal cord survivor community since then, which is extraordinarily helpful because no one knows what you're going through more than someone who has also been through it or is currently going through it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure finding that community has been incredibly helpful and beneficial. And yeah, I'm sure it's been very helpful. Yeah, definitely. I love there's two sides of it. You know, there's the opportunity to kind of seek people out when I need support and, you know, seek advice from people who have been living with their injuries longer than I have been and kind of ask about their experience and, and learn what life's been like with their specific challenges. And then at the same time, I've been fortunate enough to connect with a couple of people who are more recently injured and to kind of offer like my perspective and my advice. And that you know, I think has been helpful to those folks, but it's also been helpful to me because it feels like I'm you know, doing something positive with this experience that I've endured for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Aside from the physical impact, obviously, I'm curious, how has this experience impacted the way you live your life today, your view on the world, the lens in which you you live your life today? How has this experience shaped the way you view the world today, life after the, the accident? I can obviously relate. I, I actually was hit by a car riding a bike too. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. I was in 11th grade and I, I wasn't wearing a helmet. My head cracked the windshield and the first car missed me. And I was really fortunate. I, the car was going about 30 miles an hour, rolled off the hood of the car, had a mass concussion. My body was banged up, but the doctors and the police came afterwards. I was completely unconscious. I woke up in like a, a neck brace and they took me to the hospital and I didn't break any bones, but I had a, a mass concussion. It was just incredibly lucky. Actually, if the if the first car hit me, the first car missed me. If the first car hit me, I would have gotten run over by the, the second car. Wow. But Yeah, that's awful. I know I, I mentioned it to you before we started the show, but the biggest adversity in my, my own personal life I lost my dad to cancer when I was 20 years old and my mom when I was 25 years old. I sort of view my own life in two lenses, life sort of before when both my parents were, were alive, life after my dad had died, then life after my mom had died, and now like life now as a result. And I certainly view the world through like an extremely different lens as a result of the circumstances that life sort of threw at me. And I'm curious if that resonates with you or you know, how this experience has shaped your, your own view on, on your own life. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, I should mention, like, I lost my mom when I was in my early 30s. And, you know, I can, I can certainly relate to the pain of losing a parent, though I wasn't as young as you were. And I still have my father, of course. So I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. I mean, I guess I sort of do have a similar experience. You know, my mom had ALS. She was sick for a long time. And I, like, see my life the way it was before she was sick. I, like, have the, the lens of, like, what it was like when she was sick for seven years. And then I have the lens of like after her passing and then after my injury, which were about two years apart. And yeah, my, my perspective has changed a lot. I think like I am more interested in prioritizing my life differently. You know, I think when I was very engaged in bike racing, I prioritized bike racing and I like, you know, didn't go to family functions or I was late to family functions all the time because I had a train or I had a race, you know, skip things with friends that would have been fun and, and enjoyable. And I hope and believe that I'm not the person who would do that any longer. And I, you know, definitely make an effort to prioritize my life differently. 
it's been a little bit weird under COVID because, you know, I'm, we weren't traveling for a long time. And now that we are traveling again, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of risk associated with it. So, you know, it's not quite as like free form as it once was. And also I, I live in Colorado now. My family's on the East Coast. So it used to be very easy to see people and it's, it's trickier, but nevertheless, you know, I've been to see my dad three times this year, which is a lot, I think, when you're flying across the country. Yeah, absolutely. How do you find joy after something like this? You know, because I understand like racing and, and cycling was such a big part of your life. And it's like your life's altered as a result. What motivates you or what inspires you to get out of bed every morning and say, you know, today I'm, I'm going to live life to, to the fullest? I will admit it's sometimes challenging to like answer that question. And, you know, in some ways I will say like this injury has been a little bit isolating for me because I had like a community in Colorado that was like, you know, I was starting to form it. And then I exited the community abruptly and for reasons of trauma. And I didn't, my relationships were not so tight that like everybody stuck with me. Some did, but not everybody. And then COVID happened. So it was, that was like a major disruptor in terms of like forming community. But, you know, I think that as I started to see progress, I was very motivated and remain very motivated to like continue that progress. And you cannot progress in bed. Uh, you know, you have to get up uh, and go to work in my case, and then get to therapy and get to rehab. That's been a major motivator is just trying to improve my physical condition as best that I can. You know, I, I used to hike a lot when I was a teenager. I basically stopped doing it when I was racing bikes. Now I'm able to hike again, you know, and I love it. I love being out there. And I go, you know, I hike most weekends and that's very motivating to me to be able to like, I think everything I'm doing is feeding my ability to get into the outdoors and, and enjoy the outdoors. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and I ride bikes too. I like, I started riding a bike about a year after the initial injury. And at first it was just like flat bike paths. And then it was like slightly less flat bike paths. And then, you know, that was getting pretty boring. So I stopped riding for a while, but I bought myself an e-bike this summer, um, which enabled me to like go uphill. And now I've been able to like start to do some of the really cool riding that we have here in Boulder, sticking almost entirely to dirt roads, gravel roads, where there are is you know very little vehicular traffic. So you're, you're able to ride a bike today? Yeah. You know, again, an e-bike with my partially paralyzed leg, I really don't have enough strength to get up any meaningful hill. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. And, you know, I like, I ride an upright e-bike. Like if you saw it, you would probably think it was just a regular, you know, regular road bike. A lot of my friends from the spinal cord injury community also find a lot of enjoyment riding various kinds of hand cycles or recumbent bikes uh, where you don't have the balance. That's incredible. I'm excited to share your story because I'm curious, I guess, if you've experienced it firsthand, but I'm sure your story inspires a lot of people and acts as, and serves as a beacon of hope for someone who's looking for that that extra strength to keep going to push forward when times get tough. and. That's incredible to hear that you're back on a bike today. Yeah, I mean, I do hear from people who, you know, appreciate my resilience or appreciate my, you know, willingness to be open about my challenges because, you know, I think there's a lot of like inspiration people on the internet who engage in a lot of toxic positivity and like that is not my message. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very open about everything I'm going through and some of it fucking sucks and I'll share that as as readily as I will share my my awesome bike ride from the weekend. So, you know, I'm like glad to be able to share the work that I've done to recover from this injury, the work that I do to recover from this injury, and hopefully, yes, to like help other people with their own journey, whatever that may be, whatever that may look like. And yeah, I like I love hearing from people who you know share heavy shit with me, you know, like their own traumas, their own challenges. Absolutely. You know, their own journey. You know, beyond 
just wanting to feel better and be your best self, is there someone or something that inspires you to like push forward when you are in those dark moments or when you are in pain, et cetera? I don't know if I could like name one, one person who I like, you know, think about when I'm, you know, at my worst, but there's a lot of things that I want to achieve. You know, certainly I like, I very excited about like, hopefully building a life with my current girlfriend and, you know, we're like progressing down the path of relationship and that's, that's very exciting. And certainly she is motivating and, you know, she's been very supportive of me and my, my goals of recovery. But I think it's more, more than it's just like a single, a singular thing. It's more of like a compilation of things. It's, you know, mm. wanting to be with her. It's wanting to be with my family. It's wanting to um, achieve success in my career, wanting to, you know, pet my cats. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that I like love in life that give me reason to push through and, and work hard. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened to the driver that hit you? Well, as I told you, he fled the scene. So he ran and, you know, fortunately, through the efforts of my brother and some friends and my ex-fiance also, like we were able to pressure the police to take this investigation seriously. And they did. And they pretty quickly identified a vehicle that was spotted on a uh, surveillance camera pointing at the road. And I guess I went by in the footage and then this van went by and then they found another camera down the road a couple miles where like there were no intersections, but the van passed and then I was never seen again. And they were able to use the data on my bike computer to say like, okay, this is the correct time frame. And then they also found a piece of the vehicle that was left at the crime scene. So they put that information on the local news. They got a tip like, hey, you know, this van you're looking for, we think it's out here in Lafayette, Colorado. They went out to investigate. Sure enough, it was the van and they impounded the van. And one of the challenges with law enforcement is that you have to I think it would be easy for you or I to assume like, okay, well, whoever owns that van was obviously driving it. And that did turn out to be the case, but the police still had to prove it. And that took a long time. Certainly COVID contributed to the timeframe of, of the investigation, but they eventually did say like, okay, we have enough evidence to say that the owner of the van was driving the van. They put out a warrant for his arrest last fall. He was finally arrested in June. It was hard to track him down. He doesn't have a permanent address. He sort of stays with friends and he, I guess, is in a some kind of a non-traditional marriage situation. And so, yeah, he was arrested in, in June. And then just last week was agreed. To, he took a plea deal. So he pleaded guilty to reduce charges and was sentenced to two years in jail. And we understand that he will um, likely, in assuming good behavior, he'll likely only serve 30% of that time. Then he'll be released. He didn't have insurance, which is completely illegal, of course. But there's also really no legal remedy that helps me in this situation. Him going to jail, while I'm glad there are consequences, it doesn't actually help my situation. And because he has no insurance and he has no resources really of his own, he can't help me with my massive bills. And then, you know, in six months, he'll be out of jail and then he'll be able to start driving again relatively soon. And I don't, I'm not a religious person, but I really, you know, ask for help of the, whatever powers there may be that this guy doesn't hit somebody else. Because he doesn't seem like the kind of person who takes the responsibility of driving seriously. Mm. And driving is a responsibility. We all have an obligation to keep each other safe. Cars of any size are deadly weapons. And all it takes is one small lapse of judgment to, to hurt somebody. Or vehicles can be used intentionally to hurt people. And I don't know that that was the case here, but it certainly might have been. So the sentence that was meted out last week was not comforting to me in any way. And like, 
I actually, frankly, see it as a sort of miscarriage of justice because it doesn't serve me and it doesn't protect the public at large and it doesn't do anything for the criminal. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, man. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like he'll serve some jail time, but nothing preventing him from getting behind a car again, obviously. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the details, but I think once his parole is up, basically at the end of two years, he will be able to drive again. Wow. And also, I should say, like, this is a person who's clearly demonstrated that they don't care about law. And so I wonder, like, what's going to keep this guy from driving while he's under parole? Like, is he really going to be dissuaded by the fact that he doesn't have a license? Like, I doubt it. Right? Yeah. Like, and there's a lot of people who drive without licenses, without insurance. That's a major, uh, you know, a threat to the public, frankly. Wow. Yeah. I'm at a loss of, of words, to be honest. Uh, sorry to take the words out of your mouth. <laughs> This happened a week ago, so it's still very uh, raw for me. Got it. You know, I guess we can start to, to wrap up the show. And as I mentioned, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your story. I'm excited to share with the world. I, I know your story will serve and does serve as a beacon of hope for many. With that being said, the Bits of Gold podcast is all about moving through adversity, moving forward and building a life you love. So what would be your Bits of Gold and how to build a life you love? The strategy that I have for like trying to keep myself moving through adversity is just to establish goals. And, you know, to date, my goals have really been focused on like my physical recovery, trying to ride a bike, trying to extend, you know, like last summer, a big goal of mine was to walk 10 kilometers. This summer, a big major goal of mine was to climb one of the 14ers here in Colorado, which I achieved in last month in September. So, you know, like goal setting is very important to me, but I'm also realizing that at this phase of my recovery, I can't only set physical goals. I have to establish like other kinds of life goals because, you know, just like I, you know, I think I used to spend too much time training for bike racing. I think it would, given my history and my personality, I think it would be very easy for me to just say, to just focus on the physical and essentially turn what bike racing used to be, turn physical therapy into that and spend too much time on it and spend too much time exercising. And that's not what I want for myself. So I think I'm trying to, uh, you know, think about, is it, relationship goal? Is it career goal or both? Uh, probably, you know, probably for me, it's going to be some combination. Mm. And then for me, like I find it extremely motivating when I achieve goals. It was very exciting to like start to be able to like get to the top of mountains. That's something I used to do all the time when I was younger and I love it. And it's so cool to achieve that. And I'm very grateful to be in a position where I can start to do that kind of stuff again. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I would also say that like, I really truly do love connecting with other people who have experience various kinds of traumas and other members of the spinal cord injury community. I take a lot of a lot of heart from the experience of making those connections and offering advice and asking for advice. And and I lived in places that had very strong community values and uh, that's something I love. And so yeah, I would I would encourage anybody who's trying to move through diversity to invest in community and also to you know ask for help from community. I do think it goes both ways and I think it can lessen the burden on you. Absolutely. Where can people find you, connect with you, reach out, follow you, get more info? Yeah. Instagram's the best place. Uh, my handle is at Bernie Tweets. And yeah, I share, you know, a lot of a lot of content about my recovery and you know my achievements and my life and you know, cats sprinkled in there. And uh, yeah, I'm always always happy to uh, connect with people there. Awesome. Well, I'll certainly be following along on your journey. Thanks so much for coming on the show again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share it with a friend, subscribe, leave a review. It would mean the world. It really helps with growing the show. 
new content coming out, new episodes coming out, and so much more. Stay tuned and have an awesome week. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.